Good morning, and thank you for joining us on 5 at 8. It's Sunday, January 21st, 2024. And here's Linda Carlisle and Mark Overman with today's top news. In this episode, we'll talk about the escalating tensions in the Middle East with an Israeli air raid in Damascus and Yemen's Houthi rebels disrupting oil shipments. We'll also discuss the Dominican Republic's upcoming trial of a four-day work week, the impact of human exploration on the moon, and Ukrainian President Zelensky's concerns about former U.S. President Trump's potential concessions to Russia. Stay tuned for these top news stories of the day. Story number one. Five Iranian military advisors were killed in an Israeli air raid on a residential building in Damascus, as reported by Al Jazeera. The attack, which targeted an IRGC intelligence unit, completely destroyed the building. Iran has blamed Israel for the attack and stated that it reserves the right to respond. Tensions in the region have been escalating, with Israeli offensives in Gaza, attacks in Lebanon, and missile strikes on U.S.-led coalition forces in Iraq. The situation has raised concerns of a wider regional conflict. When you look at the recent airstrikes by Israel in Syria and Lebanon, it really makes you realize how volatile the situation in the Middle East is, doesn't it? Iran's Revolutionary Guard is blaming Israel for the attack in Damascus that reportedly killed five of their military advisors. Yes, Mark. The Middle East has always been a complex web of alliances and rivalries, and these recent incidents only underscore that complexity. It's important to remember that these are not isolated incidents. They have historical roots and can have far-reaching implications. And speaking of implications, what could be the potential international ramifications of these escalating tensions? I mean, we're not only talking about regional actors here. The U.S. is also involved in this, right? The U.S. has been a major player in the Middle East for decades. Specifically, in this context, the U.S. is seen as a supporter of Israel, which can complicate its relationships with other countries in the region. Furthermore, there's the concern that these conflicts could potentially spill over into a wider regional conflagration. Right, and you know, I was thinking about how these situations always seem to involve a multitude of actors. In this case, we've got Iran, Israel, Palestinian groups, and various local militant groups involved. Correct. And each of these actors has their own objectives and strategies, which can sometimes align, but at other times conflict with each other. This makes the situation even more complex and challenging to navigate. So I guess the question is, how do we untangle this web? Are there any effective diplomatic efforts in place to manage and mediate these conflicts? Diplomatic efforts are certainly important, Mark, but they can be hindered by the intricate and deeply rooted complexities of these conflicts. However, it's crucial to continue striving for diplomatic resolutions. The alternative, a full-blown conflict, would have devastating consequences for the region and beyond. Story number two. According to Al Jazeera, the volume of oil going from the Middle East to Europe has nearly halved due to attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels. Concerns about shipping delays and disruptions in the Red Sea have led to tighter supply and increased competition for crude supply in European markets. The disruptions have been the largest since the COVID-19 pandemic. The Houthis have targeted vessels with perceived links to Israel in an attempt to force an end to the war in Gaza. Shipping companies have suspended transit in the region, leading to higher freight rates. The European crude market has also been affected by a drop in Libyan supply and lower Nigerian exports. 
Additionally, no LNG vessels are currently transiting the Red Sea due to ongoing security threats. The demand for Angolan crude in China and India has reduced the supply available for Europe. Russia has become China's top crude oil supplier, surpassing Saudi Arabia, despite Western sanctions. Where do we even begin, Linda? I mean, this situation in the Red Sea with Yemen's Houthi rebels targeting vessels, it's like a powder keg waiting to explode, isn't it? It's not just about oil, but the ripple effects it's having on global trade. Makes you think about the domino effect, doesn't it? Yes, Mark. When we think about the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, they aren't just bodies of water. They're vital arteries of global trade. The recent attacks by the Houthi rebels have significantly impacted the flow of oil, and the effects are being felt far beyond the Middle East. Right. And it's causing a lot of jitters in Europe, with the volume of Middle Eastern crude heading there nearly halved. What's the long-term impact of this, Linda? I mean, can we draw parallels with historical instances like the Suez Crisis of 56? Indeed, there's a historical precedent. The Suez Crisis was a clear demonstration of how geopolitical issues can have residual impacts on global trade. In the current scenario, the impact extends beyond just oil prices. It's shifting trade alliances and affecting global power dynamics. As shipping companies look for alternative strategies, it's also leading to increased costs due to longer routes and higher insurance premiums. Right. You hit the nail on the head there, Linda. It's not just about getting oil from point A to point B. It's about the cost of doing business along the way. Now, the Suez Canal has always been a strategic linchpin in global trade. Does this situation put its importance into perspective? Certainly, Mark. The Suez Canal has always been vital for global trade networks and oil transportation. But these disruptions underscore just how much the world relies on these choke points. The geopolitical tensions we're seeing can significantly reshape the future of global oil trade. That's a sobering thought, Linda. So we're looking at a potential reshaping of the global oil trade. How does the world navigate this? Is there a silver lining somewhere in this cloud? Well, Mark, it's a complex issue. But as with any crisis, it forces us to innovate and adapt. It may lead to a more diversified approach to global trade routes, better crisis management strategies, and hopefully renewed efforts for peace and stability in these volatile regions. Story number three. The Dominican Republic will become the first Caribbean country to trial a four-day work week starting in February, as reported by Al Jazeera. The six-month pilot program will be voluntary for companies and will not involve a pay cut for participating employees. The standard work week will be reduced to 36 hours, and employees will continue to earn the same salaries. The trial aims to prioritize people's health and well-being while promoting sustainable and environmentally friendly productivity. Other countries, including the UK, Iceland, and Japan, have also conducted successful trials of shorter work weeks, resulting in reduced stress levels, improved work-life balance, and increased productivity. Might be a game-changer, huh? The Dominican Republic trialing a four-day work week. That's quite a step forward. I mean, lopping off an entire day from the work week and still getting paid the same. Makes you think, doesn't it? What's your take on this, Linda? You're quite right, Mark. This is indeed a significant development. The four-day workweek trial in the Dominican Republic is a reflection of a growing global shift in work patterns. It's interesting to note that this trial follows the footsteps of countries like the United Kingdom and Iceland, where similar experiments have been conducted. And the outcomes have been quite positive from what we've seen. I've heard about the UK trial. 
They saw reduced stress levels among staff, right? And better work-life balance, if I recall correctly. Yes, absolutely. Not only were stress levels reduced, but productivity was reportedly unaffected. Plus, there were other benefits too, like improved gender parity at home, as men found more time for household and family tasks. However, it's important to note that not all four-day work weeks are structured the same. For instance, in Belgium, employees work four days but still clock in 40 hours, so that's 10 hours a day. So, it's not all rosy and relaxing then? That's a pretty long day, but it's not all about shorter work weeks, right? I mean, look at India, where the co-founder of Infosys is calling for a 70-hour work week. That's like almost double the usual, right? There's a stark contrast between these perspectives. Some argue that longer work hours could boost productivity and the economy, which is the case made in India. But then, there are concerns about work-life balance, health, and overall well-being. These debates highlight the complexity of the issue. Different countries, different work cultures, and different socioeconomic contexts can lead to varied interpretations and implementations of this concept. It's a conversation we definitely need to have. Story number four. According to CNN, human exploration has significantly altered the lunar surface, leading some scientists to propose declaring a new geological epoch called the Lunar Anthropocene. The impact of human exploration on the moon began in 1959 with the landing of the Soviet Union's Luna 2 spacecraft, and since then, numerous missions have left their mark on the lunar surface. Japan's Moon Sniper Robotic Explorer, also known as the Slim Lander, recently encountered a critical issue with its solar power. But there is still hope for the mission to continue if the lander can generate electricity. In other news, researchers have used mammoth tusks to track the movements of woolly mammoths and the presence of humans in North America thousands of years ago. Malaysia's tigers are facing a rapid decline, with only an estimated 150 left in the country's rainforests. Photographer Emmanuel Rondeau captured a rare image of a Malayan tiger to aid conservation efforts. Additionally, a fossilized grasshopper nursery from 29 million years ago has provided insights into ancient insect life, and frostquakes have been experienced in parts of Scandinavia due to freezing ground temperatures. There's something really thrilling about this news, don't you think? Us humans, we've left our mark not just on this planet, but we've extended our reach all the way to the moon. That's innovation and determination for you. Well, Mark, I can see where you're coming from, but there's also a part of me that's... troubled by it. We've significantly altered the moon's surface, and for what? To leave behind remnants of rovers, golf balls, and spacecraft? I'm not sure that's something to celebrate. Oh, come on, Linda. Are we really going to downplay the progress and scientific breakthroughs that have come from these missions? It's not just about leaving physical remnants behind. It's about expanding our understanding of the universe. I agree with you to some extent, Mark. I really do. But I think we need to be more mindful of the impacts we're causing. Take the Malayan tiger, for instance. Their numbers are rapidly declining because of human interference. Sure, we've got a great photograph out of it, but at what cost? Well, Linda, I'd argue that documenting these animals in their natural habitats brings awareness to the issue. It's not just about the great photograph, it's about conservation and educating the public. We need to see these creatures to understand the urgency of protecting them. I see your point, Mark. Nevertheless, it's not just about awareness. We need to take tangible actions, and I worry we're causing more harm than good. Take the fossil discovery of the grasshopper nursery. It's fascinating. But what if our actions lead to the extinction of species before we've even discovered them? 
Okay, Linda, I see where you're coming from. But remember, progress isn't without its setbacks. As explorers, it's our responsibility to learn from our mistakes and make better choices moving forward. And that's exactly what we're doing, on the moon and here on Earth. Story number five. In a report from The Guardian, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has expressed concerns that if former U.S. President Donald Trump returns to the White House, he may make unilateral concessions to Russia that go against Ukraine's interests. Zelensky criticized Trump's claims that he could end the war in Ukraine within 24 hours as very dangerous. He also stated that he would invite Trump to Ukraine if he fulfills his promise to stop the war. Zelensky's comments come as the Biden administration considers concessions at the U.S.-Mexico border to secure a military arms package for Ukraine. Additionally, the head of the U.N. atomic watchdog warned that Russian mines had been replanted near the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is one of the world's largest nuclear power stations, as reported by The Guardian. Have you ever seen anything like this, Linda? Trump's claim that he could end the Ukraine-Russia war in 24 hours is bold, to say the least. It reflects his confidence, I'll give him that, but it's also a stark departure from traditional diplomatic approaches. Usually, negotiations like these take time. They require understanding the nuances of the conflict, building trust between parties. It's not a quick fix. And it's not just about how quickly it can be done, but also about understanding the implications of such a claim. When Trump makes such a statement, it can spark fear and uncertainty, not just in Ukraine, but among other global leaders as well. Zelensky's reaction portrays exactly that. No doubt. And it's not just about the fear, right? It's also about the credibility of such claims. We've seen in the past how political rhetoric can escalate conflicts rather than resolve them. It's a delicate balancing act between domestic political expectations and the international implications. And we can't overlook the potential impact on alliances. The Biden administration's plan to aid Ukraine is already facing opposition. If our allies, like Japan and South Korea, see us failing to support Ukraine, it could make them rethink their alliances. It's a ripple effect, really. And remember, it's not just about us. It's about setting a precedent for other nations, too. If one political leader can make such bold, unilateral claims, it could encourage others to do the same, potentially destabilizing international diplomacy. It's a complex issue with no easy solution. But it's important to remember that diplomacy isn't just about making promises. It's about building trust, understanding, and working towards a mutually beneficial resolution. And that takes time, patience, and empathy. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.